So it seems to me that there's an awful lot of astronomers around the world that work in the field of galaxy formation and galaxy evolution. And there's a big group here in Australia, the new Astro 3D group, that that's their focus. So there's lots of people doing observations, lots of people doing theory, and lots of people doing computer simulations of galaxy evolution. Why is this such a big topic and why is this such an important topic? So, well, for me, when we look out of the uni- at the universe, there's a lot of ways like a priori, you know, before you have a look at the universe, you think things might be arranged. We see stars in the night sky and we see a band of stars along a particular direction that we call the Milky Way. How is the stuff of the universe arranged when we look out on big scales? And what we find is that there's a very particular structure of the universe. Stars aren't just randomly scattered. They come in groups, groups of a fairly characteristic size. You have... You, don't, you have galaxies that have roughly 100 billion stars like the, uh, like the Milky Way does, or maybe 100 times smaller, 100 times larger. But that's sort of the range, and we find those sorts of groups out there in the universe. And so the explosion that's happened in the last sort of couple of decades is we've now got a, a lot of data about galaxies. We can, we've got catalogues of, you know, half a million galaxies or something. It's just huge numbers of, of observations of these things out in the universe. And when we look deeply at each individual galaxy, we see each one of them is very um, sort of inc- intricate and complicated. We see spiral arms. We see areas where there's new stars, areas where we can't see the stars because there's dust in the way and these sorts of things. But... but um astronomers when they look at galaxies they look at a whole range of wavelengths you get people who look at galaxies from from x-rays all the way down to radio why do we why do we need to span all these wavelengths to look at a single object well because we want to know what's going on is the short story and each of these different wavelengths the light in those wavelengths is created by a different process. And so you can look at different things that are going on. So what makes an X-ray? Well, ordinary stars don't make a lot of X-rays. So when you look at a galaxy in X-rays, you're often seeing extremely hot gas, which has been heated up by something, or some sort of crazy uh, outflow. So sometimes we see around uh, black holes, Right. The very innermost parts of that are so hot that they're glowing in X-rays. And then they blast jets out. There's this matter coming off in, in sort of two directions from the poles at ridiculous, relativistic, almost the speed of light kind of speeds. And those are producing X-rays as well as they hit things. So you can see that process. If you look at it in what are called optical wavelengths, which is roughly what your eyes can see, you're basically seeing stars. If you go to a bit longer wavelengths, what are called infrared, then you're seeing dust in galaxies. So what would be obscuring light from stars is actually something that sort of glows when you look in those wavelengths. And then off to radio, you're seeing other processes still. You're usually seeing something like free electrons just sort of winding around magnetic fields. And when you, you put all of this together, you suddenly, you're, you're seeing galaxies in all sorts of different dimensions. So, so this suggests that a galaxy, you know, we have a, a word to describe this, this object, but, mm. you know, like a human being, there's a lot of complicated kind of mm. interactions going on inside and we see different things going on, different energies, mm-hmm. right? But 
the the stuff that we see, of course, is not the dominant thing to do with galaxies. There's other matter there as well. Yeah, so this is the ma- one of the major puzzles. So starting in, uh, I think, the 1930s with Fritz Zwicky, who was a Swiss astronomer, he was looking at galaxies. And one of the things we can do, which is amazing and wonderful, is whenever a, a particular atom gets heated up or you know excited in some way, you inject energy, the electrons inside an atom will bounce around a bit. And so it gives us a very specific uh, light signature of a, an atom. And in particular, we can tell when that signature is shifted. And one of the things that can shift it is just if the the light is going away from us all, or the emitter, sorry, atom, is going away from us all coming towards us. This is the Doppler effect. And so when we look at distant galaxies, if we uh, look at the light from this half of the galaxy and that half of the galaxy, very often, almost always in fact, we see one side going away from us and the other side coming towards us which would be this characteristic of rotation. So that tells us how why the galaxy isn't just collapsing in on itself or expanding. It's stable under its own gravity because it's rotating. In the same way the solar system is stable. The Earth isn't spiralling into the sun, even though it's being pulled in by the sun because it's going around. What Zwicky noticed and what we've seen basically ever since is... We know from, from Einstein's gravity or Newton, even Newton's ideas of gravity how much mass we need in this central bit of the galaxy in order for a star out here to be held in an orbit going at a certain speed. I know how much mass I need in the centre for every, for every galaxy to hold on to its own stars. And what we consistently find is if we then look at how much stuff there is there that we can see, we sort of look at how much light, we know roughly how much light we get per star, we, add, we have a guess at how much stuff we think is. We're consistently short. We, there's not enough stuff there for this galaxy to hold on to its own stars. And so Zwicky said there must be another form of matter that we can't see, known as dark matter. And there's a whole heap of ideas about yeah. what that could be. Uh, not Just to, to go back to the history, I believe Zwicky was looking at individual galaxies in clusters. And yes. the rotation, of course, was uh, Vera Rubin and Kent Ford in the 1970s. They were the ones to spot this... The, the flat rotation oh, curve right, yes. that, that showed you the dark matter. But yes, so we have we have dark matter. So we can't see the dark matter. So essentially what we have is we have all these complicated processes going on with the, the atoms mm-hmm. being held by the gravity of other atoms and the dark matter. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so the observations seem pretty complicated across all these wavelengths. It seems like there's a complicated ecosystem that we need to understand. So the, the evolution, so a lot of the theory has been based around how do galaxies grow given the fact that after the universe was born all of the matter was smoothly distributed so what what what's a, what's a pen and paper theorist sort of say about the growth of galaxies well the short story is of course gravity so we start with a universe that we can see in the cosmic microwave background so that's sort of 400,000 years after the beginning it's, it's basically the initial conditions as far as a, a galaxy you know, uh, astronomer is concerned. It's almost perfectly smooth in that if you go to this region of the universe and ask how much matter is there in, in, in this region and then take an equally sized region over here, uh, you don't get too much of a difference between those answers. It'll be basically one part in 100,000 difference. So whatever number you get over here, you'll get the same number here to about five decimal places, which is kind of amazing. 
but there will be slight differences. So if there's a lump of matter here, it's slightly heavier than average. Thanks to gravity, it's pulling on everything around it. And if it pulls a bit of matter in, it gets even heavier and it's even more heavier than average. So it will continue to grow. And in this way you get sort of a runaway effect. The, the rich get richer, big things get bigger by eating smaller things. Now, all of this is happening within an expanding universe. If everything were just static and, and, and not moving at all, this would be a runaway exponential process. Everything would just collapse catastrophically, but everything's expanding as well. So it's not quite that quick, but it's still quite efficient. So that's, that's sort of process number one, the most important one. Gravity is bringing stuff in. Okay. So why do we need more than paper and pen theorists? What, that, there's been an explosion in essentially simulating galaxy growth on mm -hmm. computers. So why computers? What, 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 what's there that um, is, is good for a computer to deal with? So there's something called the three-body problem. Um, yeah, actually, there's a few things called the three-body problem, but the most famous one is, so in Newton's ideas about gravity, if I have the sun and the earth, two bodies, and I say, all right, what's the law that governs these? It's Newton's laws of gravity. What path would the earth take as it goes around the sun? We can solve that paper and pencil. All right? We can just write down the equations and solve them, and we can write down the solutions, and we get you know something that nicely describes the way the Earth goes around the sun. Uh, except, unless you are in a third object. Suppose you want to know how the Earth and the Sun and the Moon together go around. And now you've got a three-body problem, and provably, mathematically provably, there is no way to just write down a solution for that. And so what we need, we can write down the equation we want to solve, but what we need is some other way of getting at the solution. And so what we try and do is we can try and solve it in a computer. We can try and do it numerically. Let's just put the Earth here and put the Sun here and put the Moon here and just move the equations forward bit by bit in a computer and trace out the solution that way. And so if, if that's the case with three bodies, uh, doing the whole solar system is then a, a problem with, you know, as many planets and moons as there are, although they're not all, you know, equally important, but they're still there. So if we want to know how the entire universe acts under gravity, with every bit of the universe being a bit like a, a separate particle, there's only so much you can do with paper and pencil. Once we start to get to the, the case where a region over here could be twice as dense as a region over there, we lose the ability to even to apply the right sort of you know, approximations to our equations. And so all we've got left really is uh, either to try and do some very broad statistics on paper and pencil, which we can do, but if we want to know what's happening in detail, we better get a computer to, to attack the problem. All right, so I, I remember reading some of the early papers on this, of course, and people essentially just dealt with the dark matter in the universe because that, that's the dominant mass. Mm -hmm. But there's been a, you know, an explosion in computational power. This means that people have been able to add some of this more complicated physics in the in the atoms, the the baryonic physics as it's mm. called. So do you want to sort of explain what, what that does? Yeah, so if you've just got dark matter, so far as we know, all we need to worry about is gravity. And so you, you could say, okay, here's some particles of dark matter. All I need to worry about is this one attracts this one and this one attracts, and they all attract each other via gravity. That's all fine. But if we've got ordinary matter like 
what's called baryonic matter, the stuff that we're made out of and stars are made out of, the periodic table of the elements, all of that, protons and neutrons and electrons. They do more complicated stuff. They have things like pressure. So in this room, there's air pressure because you know the, the particles of air are bouncing off each other and bouncing off the window and bouncing off the wall. And so that's a complication. Now, this particle will feel gravity due to this one, but they'll also feel pressure of the two sort of volumes of, of gas getting into pressure. One of the most important things that that does is uh, it sort of fights against gravity. Okay. So you need a certain mass of stuff to try and compress. But it also gives a way uh, to, for, for more collapse. If, if the matter is compressed and heats up, so hot that it starts to glow, that energy that was there fighting against gravity, this pressure, these collisions, suddenly two atoms collide and they glow, they produce a uh, uh, light. That light can just escape and suddenly that system's lost a bit of that energy, lost a bit of that fight against gravity and so can collapse. And so this is gas cooling, which is a crucial process. And so there's sort of two broad classes of simulations. We can attack just the dark matter, which is most of the stuff anyway, and just get on that level and do a simpler uh, simulation. Or we can really try and get in the details about how gas how experiences pressure, it cools, it makes stars and all those sorts of things. So can we see individual stars in our simulation? Alas, no. We'd love to. Bugger. So there's a trade-off here. Um, and it's, it's a bit like the trade-off when you take a photo of something. On the one hand, you, you want to get all the detail you can, but you also want to get the sort of width of thing that you can. So I could take a, a photo of the detail of you know this little piece of this microphone, but at the expense of seeing anything else. Or I could zoom back and take a picture of the whole room, but then I wouldn't see the detail. right? So we now computers, there's a certain amount of calculation they can do. There's a certain amount of data they can hold. And so we have to decide, all right, uh, do I want a big box, but not a lot of detail in the universe? So I'll try to simulate a box of, you know, 25 billion light years across or something. Um, well, probably a million light years, to be honest, yeah. the way these are these days. Um, or so I have a big box, and so I'll, see, I'll make lots more galaxies. And so if I want to say, well, you know, 25% of galaxies do this, I can make that sort of claim because I've got a, a large number of statistics in the box. I can, I'm actually making a lot of stuff. Or do I want to go in for the fine detail? And as it is at the moment, even if we were just simulating one galaxy, we still wouldn't be able to have it. We still don't have enough computing power to simulate every single star. In, and you know, not to mention all the gas and all the dark matter as well. So if you want to simulate a bit of the universe that makes 10,000 galaxies, you, we can't get down to the level of a star. So actually, in practice, the best ones these days, it's sort of about 100,000 stars per particle. Okay, okay. So is galaxy formation and evolution solved? I mean, or, or are we? I mean, are we just picking at the details here? Do we? Have, is the broad brush picture right? Are we just trying to get the the details right? It depends who you ask, actually. Okay. And there are, I mean, there are a lot of astronomers who are pretty skeptical about what what simulators are doing. That comes from a couple of areas. There's there's a lot of astronomers astronomers who are observational, who have spent a lot of time looking at real galaxies, who see the stuff that comes out of simulations and say that doesn't quite look right. You know, there's there's this, there's that. 
one of the things that's quite hard to do um, is when galaxy when a galaxy collapses, it, uh, a lot of galaxies collapse into a disk, and so you've got a sort of vertical structure and a horizontal structure, and it's it's harder to get that vertical structure right just because you, you that's more fine detail that you're not quite getting, and those processes are pretty subtle. So you have observers who say, yeah, that doesn't quite look like what I see in the universe. And then you have some theorists who um, are just skeptical of the whole process just because they know the sort of assumptions we're having to make in order to do these simulations at all. And they're a bit skeptical about whether those are the right assumptions. In particular, there's a couple of different um, numerical methods. There's a different ways of having a computer attack the problem. And there's the, the, guy, the people who do it this way by splitting the universe up into particles and have the particles move around. There's the people who do it this way by splitting the universe up into little boxes and have stuff sort of flow between the boxes. This is called uh, adaptive mesh refinement. And there's people in the middle who are trying to do some sort of hybrid of the two. And it's not entirely clear when these disagree, who's getting it right, who's getting it wrong, whether anyone's getting it right. Mm-hmm. So... There are still, there's, there's things in the universe they don't fully explain and there's, there's things even in theory that we're not quite sure we're doing right. Yeah, and I, and I also guess that because it's a multi-scale problem, right? I mm. mean, there are people that try and study uh, individual stars or the formation of individual stars or the evolution of a cloud of stars and all this builds up and up and up to give you the overall picture of a galaxy mm. and whether or not we've got this part influencing that part yeah. correctly, etc., is, is still a big problem. So I guess we have this overall sort of picture roughly, right, that there are galaxies in the universe yeah. and they didn't used to be, so they came from somewhere. Yeah. But there are still lots of details that need to be sorted out. Yep, so we've still got some work to do, which is good because it's an awful lot of fun. <laughs>